0: So, Mark. Yes? I know that we are fiercely anti-murder on this podcast.
1: Yes, that will probably come up a lot this episode.
0: (laughs) But I need to ask you a critical question. Okay. What is the perfect crime?
1: Hmm. So, this might apply just to me, but have you heard of the film Ocean's 8?
0: Yes, I have. I saw it with you, I believe. Yeah, probably. (laughs) That sounds about right. In this film,
1: they use disguises and one famous person to break into the Met Gala in order to steal things. Now, I don't really need to steal the things, but I do want to go to the Met Gala, mostly also to meet Rihanna, who in this movie does not exist as the winner of the Met Gala. She just goes. No, does she even go? What is I don't her think role she even that? goes
0: inside. She's like the
1: tech person. She's the guy in the chair. Oh, yeah. She's the guy in the chair. I mean, it wouldn't be the same if she wasn't there, but I would want to use super fun schemes to break into the Met Gala in order to just kind of hang out and eat all the free food, which I can only imagine
0: is good. See, the crime that I was thinking of also involves a gala, because what you do is you go to this gala, and then you make sure to... Uh, the director of the place, you make sure that you give them a glass, and then you swab the glass for their fingerprints, and then you use that to rub it on a glove so that you can go down into the basement. You can use the glove with their fingerprint to get into the vault. Once you're there, it's the Declaration of Independence, and you use a laser to heat it up a little bit. That puts things into lockdown. Then, you're able to get through things before security because you've got her fingerprint glove, and you can steal the Declaration of Independence, put it in the oven, run some lemon juice on it, and get the code. That code is going to tell you that you need to Go to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. You need to look at the silence do good letters to decipher the code. That will tell you to go to Independence Hall, where you need to smash open some bricks and take out some funky glasses. Then take that Declaration of Independence that you're already holding onto. Go to Trinity Church, use the funky glasses. That'll tell you to bust open a 200-year-old grave of a man named Parkington Lane. Once you do that, you'll discover that I guess he didn't exist, because instead, there's a whole bunch of treasure.
1: I'm insanely impressed that you managed to run through that entire scheme. From it's the memory. perfect crime! Well, yeah, because there's not too much crime involved either. Well, I mean, sealing the declaration is a big crime, but after that, there's a lot less crime.
0: They do bust up multiple National Historic Landmarks.
1: Okay, they remove one brick and destroy, desecrate one grave. Who hasn't? Fair. I think that movie feels like there are so many more steps than when it's actually repeated back. Like, they only go to three places. Yeah, but two it feels in the same like. City. Yeah, it feels like they go to so many more. But I guess part of that is because they start in the Arctic. As one does. As you do. That's how all good adventures start. But yeah. in my mind, they always have so many more steps. And every time I rewatch it, I'm just always surprised where I'm like, huh, there's not a next clue. It's, just it's a much simpler here. movie than you think. It is. It's also only like 90 minutes,
0: I think. It rules. It's very good. So I don't know if you know this. I don't know if it's come up on the show. As of January 2020, they confirmed that National Treasure 3 is once again under proper development. And they are simultaneously developing a series for Disney+. Plus. Will that series star Nicolas Cage? No,
1: but the movie would. Okay. Well, I am extremely excited for the movie. The TV show, maybe a little less so.
0: Yeah, I just appreciate that they're out there trying to get us some National Treasure content. We gotta know what's in the book, Mark.
1: Well, I have a feeling they will not discuss <laughs> the Book of Secrets, unfortunately. What was on
0: page 47? Oh, right. They did kind of lead up to a sequel. National Treasure 2 has an aggressive sequel tease where it ends with President Bruce Greenwood... Asking Nicolas Cage to look into what's on page 47. Huh. I've seen these movies a few times.
1: In May 2020, Bruckheimer stated that the film was being written, and it was the hope to have the original cast from the previous films return. I could have sworn that there was
0: already a script. There was a script. Okay. But for whatever reason, I mean, a big part of it being the utter failure of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and then that combined with G-Force also being a flop Disney and Bruckheimer parted ways, then Bad Boys for Life was a massive hit, and so now Bruckheimer's looking pretty good again, and he and Disney were able to start getting things rolling again. I honestly genuinely hope that this happens. Yeah, I want it to happen. It's weird that it all has hung so far on the success of Bad Boys 3. I really do love National Treasure. It's fantastic. Now, the second one is truly
1: bananas. That is true. I need to rewatch the second. I haven't seen it in so long. We should maybe do it. There is a bit more romance because they've gotten divorced and then get back together. So there is more to talk about. Right. It may be longer than the
0: shortest episode we've ever recorded. That like barely cracked 30 minutes. Uh, What a movie. Also, speaking of perfect crimes, there was this amazing article that I read in like 2016 about a fluke in... Judicial boundaries where, under federal law, if you commit a crime, then you are held accountable for that crime in the jurisdiction in which you commit it. And for the most part, our courts align with state boundaries. But that gets hazy when it comes to federal land. And so there's like a chunk, like a small chunk of Yellowstone National Park in Idaho that is technically in a court jurisdiction that covers Wyoming. But if you committed a crime there, you couldn't be held accountable in Wyoming because. That's not the state where you committed the crime, but Idaho's courts don't have jurisdiction over that chunk of Yellowstone Park. So, like, technically, if you committed a crime there that you had not premeditated in another state, you could not be tried anywhere. So if you, like, committed murder and could somehow prove that it was a crime of passion in the moment in that one area, no one could hold you accountable.
1: I think it would be very difficult to prove a lack of premeditation unless you can somehow prove your ignorance of that loophole in the law, it would be very suspect.
0: Well, yes, of course.
1: But also, after that article came out, wouldn't they try and figure out how to close that loophole? Yes, the famously speedy courts got right on that, I'm sure. <laughs> well, well <laughs> valid. Huh. I wonder. I want to find this article.
0: I will. Uh, I will send it to you.
1: Okay. That sounds very interesting. Well, it is time to start the show. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm Gay.
0: And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast dedicated to examining a critical issue. Namely, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are returning to the work of Alfred Hitchcock to look at the romance in his 1954 thriller, Dial M for Murder. Now,
1: this film is less about romance and more about the end of a romance, I guess you could say. Arguably the end of two, in a way. Well. Ish. I feel like the second one continues on, maybe. Unclear. We will debate. (laughs) We will debate.
0: So, had you seen this movie before?
1: I watched this movie on a plane, and I think
0: I fell asleep, because I did not know how it would end. All right. I had not seen it, but I thought a lot about Strangers on a Train, which similarly involves somebody hiring someone they barely know to commit a murder. Yeah, this film,
1: I enjoyed it. I would not say it's top-tier Hitchcock. I think it's pretty darn good, though. But I think it's very good. It's one of his very limited space movies, like Rope, where it almost all takes place in one living room. There are two big reasons for that.
0: One reason for that is that it's based on a play uh, from 1952, also written by Frederick Knott, just like the screenplay. Um, John Williams, who plays the inspector, and Anthony Dawson, who plays the murderer, Swan, also played those roles on Broadway. The other reason to have so few locations is that this movie was shot in 3D. What? Yes. In the early 1950s, 3D was really trendy. This is polarized 3D where you use the glasses with the red and blue lenses. And they shot the whole thing in 3D using some brand new cameras that Warner Brothers had developed. And one of the things with shooting in 3D was that you had to use a more complicated array of mirrors than usual which absorbed a lot of the light. So you had to use way more light than you would on a normal movie set. So for example, exterior shooting is a lot more difficult when you just need to have tons and tons of lights. Right. So they did actually shoot it in 3D. I've got some interesting stuff, interviews with Hitchcock about 3D that I'll post on our social media. But when they premiered it in Philadelphia, audiences basically didn't bother going to the previews in 3D. And the exhibitor asked the studio for permission to show it in 2D instead. Warners said okay, and then people started going to that. There's a quote from Hitchcock that I really liked where he said, 3D is a nine-day wonder, and I came in on the ninth day.
1: I can't imagine a movie that needs 3D less than this one, honestly.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting thinking about 3D not as just an action thing, but where you can do other sorts of tricks with it. I mean, the shot of Margot's hand reaching towards the camera when she's looking for the scissors in the fight scene. Like, that's supposed to be a cool 3D shot. Her hand is reaching out at the audience.
1: That definitely makes some of the shots in the dramatic scenes make more sense, but it didn't feel out of place watching it in 2D, because I do not own a 3D television.
0: This movie was released on 3D Blu-ray in 2013, and it's apparently a very good transfer.
1: Again, if I knew someone with a 3D TV... Maybe I could look into it. But again,
0: who owns a 3D TV? Well, it's because they're not on the market in the US anymore. I actually own a weirdly large amount of 3D Blu-rays because there was a couple of years where to get the Marvel movies on Blu-ray with the good special features, you had to buy the 3D combo pack.
1: Are they separate discs or can you just Yeah, so I've got
0: like a 3D Blu-ray disc, a Blu-ray disc. There might be a DVD in there too.
1: Huh. I wonder why they can't just... I guess it is just a completely different print of the film. So you can't really just play it in 2D off of that file.
0: They did show the 3D version of the movie in San Francisco at a special screening in 1980, and that was a big hit. So they did a limited national re-release in 1982 that did pretty well. But I think that's interesting because it kind of shows the way that to a lot of American studios and critics, during his own lifetime, Hitchcock was seen as this kind of schlocky director.
1: Yeah, if he was willing to do such a gimmicky thing, I feel like the idea of the kind of director we have of who Hitchcock is. This seems so out of place, his
0: willingness to go with such a gimmick of 3D. But at the time, he was this kind of goofy cultural figure. This movie comes out around the same time that Alfred Hitchcock Presents starts on TV. And Hitchcock's one of the earliest directors who becomes a big pop culture figure in their own right, but it, he has this perception of being kind of a goofy one.
1: I mean, he is kind of a goofy persona.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And the fact that he puts himself in all of his movies definitely plays into that idea of him too, not the idea of him as a super serious director.
0: Yeah, he shows up early in this one.
1: Yeah. This movie really demonstrated to me the ridiculousness that is the transatlantic accent.
0: No, it's wonderful.
1: Where they're all supposed to be British, but their accents are all completely different. Even people that are from the same city. Grace Kelly sounds so much more American than everyone else, even as they're all trying
0: to do the same accent. because Grace Kelly is from Her Majesty's Fine City of um, Philadelphia.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's just so strange to see it i think the actual transatlantic nature of the cast and the setting really highlighted it for me Where in a movie like the philadelphia story everyone is all american actors putting on the same fake transatlantic accent so you don't notice it as much but in this hearing grace kelly and the lead actor's name talk to each other was very disconcerting especially having just moved back from london where i know what people sound like are you talking about Robert Cummings as Mark or Ray Milland as Tony? Tony. And Mark, because he's American too, so it's
0: just such a weird mix of things. Right, especially given that the movie has accents signal things to other characters. The inspector asks Mark, oh, have you been in the country before, based on his accent.
1: Right. This is movie took place in some neighborhood called like Maida Vale or something. And I genuinely thought they'd made it up because I'd never heard of it. But it just goes to show how many neighborhoods
0: there are in the city of London. One of the things I love about this movie is some of the silliness of like mid-century class in the way that it's shown. (laughs) Like Tony has just been caught attempting to have his wife murdered, pours himself a drink and starts offering them around to everybody. And the movie ends with them all being like, yes, of course, of course, Tony, give us a drink. Like, let's all stand here and be jolly before you get carted away to prison. To be hanged. Because right. this
1: was a time when they were still hanging people. Yeah, but even in the midst of that, they cannot abandon decorum. It's insane. And the execution method in Europe that lasted into the 1900s were truly Wild France guillotined someone in like 1970s, and I think Albania was still garroting people until they ended their death penalty.
0: Look, the guillotine at least is designed to be humane.
1: It is, and I mean the worst part of it, I feel, is the lead-up seeing it because it is over very quickly,
0: and it was yes. a significant
1: improvement over the former method of beheading, which could take like ten chops to finish. Yes. But at the same time, by the 1900s, they should probably have moved past the guillotine. And luckily, they moved past the death
0: penalty altogether. Yes, that's a good thing. Which this country has yet to do. Actually, this will be distant news by the time this episode comes out. But the UK government, at the beginning of June 2020, announced that they would no longer share information on criminal... Uh, investigations with the United States because they don't share it with countries that use the death penalty. Wow, that's big news. Yeah. The depressing thing is I think
1: a majority of British people want to bring back the death penalty still decades after they abolished it.
0: Well, that's dumb.
1: Even though they technically hadn't fully abolished it until the 1990s when they finally were like, hmm, treason shouldn't have the death penalty
0: associated with it. I mean, here's the thing. The death penalty creates all of these issues that we know about through things like the Innocence Project. I mean, if your husband conducts an elaborate plot to have you killed but then fails so then he modifies it into an elaborate plot... To frame you for murdering your blackmailer, like, you need recourse.
1: Yeah, there needs to be some sort of appeal system, clearly. The movie
0: actually does have one mention that she goes through an appeals process. It
1: supposedly takes place over the course of, like, a month, though.
0: Yeah, a trial and an appeal.
1: Yeah, it's mind-boggling to see how fast the justice system works according to this movie. (laughs) Also, the amount of criminal actions the investigator undertakes to solve this crime. So many. And it's all presented as like,
0: ah, here's this, like, charming, canny old investigator as he, like, breaks into people's homes. Yeah, I'm watching this and I'm
1: like, this case should be completely thrown out because none of this evidence is admissible in court.
0: Yeah, it's all wild. And I will say, I was impressed with how readily people would just confess to stuff based on relatively limited evidence.
1: Yeah, That's why you need to have a lawyer present. That is why it's your right to have a lawyer present when dealing with the police. Yeah. Some of his tricks were pretty canny, but still illegal.
0: Yeah, like the key business was all good. Yeah, he was a very interesting investigator. I enjoyed that he always employed the Columbo strategy of coming by, asking a couple of questions, being halfway out the door before going, Oh, one more thing. I really need
1: to watch Columbo.
0: You gotta watch Columbo.
1: I gotta make my way further into Murder, She Wrote first.
0: The thing about Columbo is they're designed to be like TV movies. So you don't watch them in a series. You just like pop on a Columbo for an evening when you feel like it.
1: That's an interesting system
0: for a TV show. Yeah, it was more like a series of TV movies. Hmm. So this is the first of the three movies in which Hitchcock directed Grace Kelly, along with Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. It is worth noting that she is, I believe, 23 in this movie. Ray Milland, who plays Tony, is 22 years older than she was, and Robert Cummings, who plays Mark, was 19 years older.
1: They were both so ugly in comparison to her. Well, that's because Grace
0: Kelly is gorgeous. Like, right, neither of them is bad looking.
1: But when they're on screen with her, all you can think about is how unattractive they are in comparison to her.
0: It's also worth noting, we've been trashing a lot of dresses on this show for the last couple of months. Grace Kelly always looks fantastic.
1: Oh my god, the dresses in this movie. Her red dress that she wears- Amazing! I love it! She looks so good throughout this movie, including after she is released from prison, where she is scheduled to be hanged the next day. The next day. (laughs) How do we make Grace Kelly look disheveled and distraught because she is just about to be hanged? Oh, I know, her hair will be- down, but still perfect. And she'll wear a nude lipstick instead of a bright red one. That'll put show like them.
0: Sort of a blankety thing over her shoulders.
1: But she was wearing that before because that was the same outfit she was arrested in. It was just a great coat. But it's so funny. It's just hmm, a nude lipstick. That'll convey the message. She also has a great nightgown that reminded me of the Thin Man. Oh, that nightgown stands in its own class, though. The fact that the sleeves touch the ground really separates that from all pretenders. It's pretty incredible. Wow. We've given away a lot about this movie, so hopefully you've seen it, because
0: there's quite a few twists and turns. Yeah, I mean, it's a 1954 not-quite-murder thriller. It's available on Canopy, the streaming service that's free if you use your library card. I highly recommend you make use of that. The library has been a godsend in this trying time. It's actually been a little difficult for me because I use the library as a physical institution a lot. We had originally planned to do Hitchcock's Rebecca for this episode, and we announced that on our social media pages, but it is not available to rent or stream anywhere, and I cannot go to the physical library to check it out. So we wound up doing this instead.
1: I wonder if Netflix kind of snapped it up in preparation for their remake
0: That's possible. I mean, it would depend on who has the rights for it and how that all shakes out. I actually don't know who produced that.
1: It was his first American movie. I do know that, but that's about it.
0: Looks like it was a UA movie, which I believe is now owned by MGM, most of whose digital library is held by Warner Brothers, which would put it on HBO Max, where Rebecca is not available because I checked.
1: I finally set up my HBO Max account through...
0: Xfinity. It's a pretty exciting library. The interface is not amazing. No, I don't really get it. I'm particularly displeased with navigating Looney Tunes, which is incredibly confusing.
1: I do feel bad because they got hit real hard with production of their original
0: series. I mean, that's like Peacock was supposed to debut in July, and you were supposed to learn about it through a massive ad campaign during the Olympics. (sighs) Oh boy. (laughs) So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, that is not great timing for them. Anyway, anyway uh, streaming Dilemma for Murder. Aside, should we talk about the romance of Dilemma for Murder?
1: Sure. There is very little romance in this movie because even Mark and Grace Kelly don't seem to like each other that much anymore, well they used to. Yeah. And I guess Grace Kelly and Tony liked each other at some point? It seems that way. At the very least he liked her money. That's certainly true. So to break down the romance, as we do every week, we will be investigating it through five key points in the romantic plot line. So Will, what is
0: point number one? So the first scene in the movie, actually one of the first shots we get is of a hand dialing M on a phone. One of the tricks of those new 3D cameras they had was because they use like multiple cameras and a setup of mirrors, that contraption couldn't work with certain short lenses. So to do a really, really tight close-up like that You just couldn't on 3D. So what they did for that was they built a giant phone and a giant hand to do those shots. That's insane. So somewhere there's the giant hand that they used to make dial M for murder. I just want that giant phone. Yeah. Especially because I
1: love the idea that everything on it was numbers except for the giant red M. Right, of course. They used letters in phone numbers back then. But they still have the numbers on the telephone, so I just loved that shot of the big red M. Dial M for murder. It's such a great name, too. <laughs> it is a very good name. I wonder if they chose that neighborhood because it's a rich neighborhood that does start with M, so their phone number does start with the letter M. That's probably it.
0: Hmm. Putting things together. Ugh, his mind. <laughs> <laughs> so our first point is also, like, the first shot of the movie, which is... Grace Kelly, Margot, and Mark, played by Robert Cummings, kissing in Grace Kelly's apartment. They're just making out.
1: Doesn't it start with a kiss between her and Tony, but they don't say anything? Does it? I feel like it opens with like her kissing Tony, and then they zoom out, and then it cuts to a next... Kiss and they zoom out, and it's a different man. Except these men look similar enough that I didn't really pick up on that.
0: You're probably right. I wasn't maybe paying enough attention to notice that the men were different.
1: Yeah, because they are both very mediocre looking, bland white men with dark hair.
0: Meanwhile, Grace Kelly is in this fabulous red dress. Yes, with red lace sleeves running down her arms. It's fantastic. Do you remember the letters you wrote to me? Yes, I remember.
1: After I read them, I burned them thought
0: it best all except one you probably know the one i mean yes i think i do so anyway um they're making out Margot and mark and over the course of their conversation we learned that they are not conducting an affair but they used to be conducting an affair now they're just people who casually make out on the couch
1: Right. There's an old love there. And so Mark is an American crime writer. Mostly for TV. Who is just visiting London this time around. And I think part of the reason that they've broken off the affair is they live in London versus
0: America. And it's not easy to get between back then. Sure. She also says that her husband, Tony, has changed since the last time Mark was around. Like last time Mark was in town, Tony was really annoying. He's a semi-professional tennis player. And what Margot says is, oh no, right around the time that you left, he became really nice. He stopped." Playing tennis, he settled into a job, he's just been really great. So that's part of why I stopped writing you. I felt like I didn't need something outside my marriage, things were so good here, and that's why I burned all of your love letters. Except for one. That was stolen. Right. She kept one and she's like, I think you know the one I meant. Which is interesting to me because when we hear Tony describe all this, it sounds like she didn't read the other letters, but she must have. Right. I think it's just the most
1: scandalous, or the one that actually admits to love. Yeah. Would be my guess is it's the
0: most damning
1: of the letters. Because
0: she's willing to pay for it. Exactly. So she kept the one letter. She's been like carrying it around with her ever since she received it. But then one day she lost her handbag and when she was able to retrieve it, everything was in the bag except for the letter. And now she's been blackmailed over it. So what we've got in our romantic relationship is we've got Margot and Mark who used to be seeing one another. And we know there was this exchange of love letters. And then we've got Tony who was bad, but is now better. But Margot's being blackmailed.
1: Right. So she is supposed to pay the blackmailer 50 pounds in order to get
0: this letter back. And she decides to do it in part because it's expensive but not a massive sum.
1: Right. So, I was using the Bank of England's inflation calculator a few times throughout this movie just to kind of get a sense of the money so I could wrap my head around it. 50 pounds then is about 1400 pounds now. So, Oh, it's not an insignificant amount of money. But she is also worth, based off of the 90,000 pounds, I think she's worth about two and a half million pounds. All right, then. So 1,400 pounds is really no skin off her back. Yeah, she's able to just kick that away. Right. Because Margot is loaded. And somehow still has control over her money, it seems, because it sounds like At one point that she has Tony on an allowance, which I loved.
0: Yes, it does seem that way. He has stopped playing tennis and it seems like he just kind of is now like her house husband.
1: Yeah, he sits around and basically his job is just to love her and take care of her. But he seems to be doing a pretty decent job at it.
0: He's been doing great the past year. Except for the fact that the whole time he's been planning to murder her. But he's been very nice during that period. Which just goes to show,
1: maybe if he had tried getting to know and loving his wife, he wouldn't have needed to
0: murder her after all. Yeah, there's an idea. So, the first like 30 minutes of this movie are just talking in this room. That's the most stage play-y the movie ever gets. And this whole thing is very much like a stage play. But our shift from point one to point two happens as... Tony arrives back home. I should simply say that you came here tonight half drunk and uh, tried to borrow money on the strength that we were at college together. When I refused, you mentioned something about a letter belonging to my wife. As far as I could make out, you're trying to sell it to me. I gave you what money I had and you gave me the letter. It has your fingerprints on it. Remember? Then you said if I went to the police, you'd tell some crazy story about my wanting you to murder my wife. He meets Mark, who I took it to be they had never met before.
1: Right. This seems to be their first meeting in person, but it sounds like he has heard
0: of Mark. He has heard of Mark from Margo. The three of them are all supposed to go to a play together, but he's like, oh no, I have some business I need to take care of. You go on and have fun. Right.
1: But he does invite Mark to a bachelor party the following night.
0: Yeah, because Tony's a friendly guy. He's so nice these days. Right. He's just a
1: happy-go-lucky murderer
0: former tennis player he hasn't killed anybody well he has plotted it for a very long time yeah i thought about stealing the declaration of independence but i haven't done it fair enough so in point number two we've now got tony home alone and he calls up a dude to say hi i'm interested in buying your car i'd love to take care of it tonight can you come on by so this dude shows up for the most uncomfortable conversation
1: Oh, they're talking just
0: about the car before anything else is insane. It's weird. So Tony is just like trying to buy the car. He's insisting on getting a lower price. He's like, I'm not even going to talk to you about the price until you're three drinks in. That way you'll be more amenable to what I want. Right. Which is a skeezy way to conduct any relationship. And so the car is an American car, which comes up a lot. Because that's the premise for why Tony has sought him out. Like, I don't just want a car, I want an American car, and there aren't a ton of those available.
1: Right. So Swan, who is selling the car, is asking for about 31,000 pounds. So it is definitely unsurprising that they're negotiating for it. 31,000 pounds in today's. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It was like 1100 in the movie. Right. So it's not a cheap used car, for sure. So it makes sense that they're negotiating, but it is so uncomfortable to sit
0: through. Yes. Especially because Tony clearly has a larger agenda here and is just spooling it out bit by bit. For example, when he puts on the whole charade of not recognizing Swan, and then pulls down the photo that he has on the shelf of Swan and Alfred Hitchcock at the college reunion.
1: Right. And the way he leads into it as he offers Swan a cigar, and Swan's like, oh no, I smoke my pipe. And he goes, but I have this photograph on my
0: wall of you smoking a giant cigar. With Swan, like, in the foreground, it's the photo from The Shining. Like, it's not just a picture of a bunch of people, it's a picture of Swan with a group of people around him.
1: (laughs) It makes it very clear who you're supposed to focus on. Right, and like, the number two person is Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, so this is from an alumni dinner for Cambridge University.
0: And so then Tony's going through all that he remembers of Swan, which mostly focuses on Swan having been suspected of stealing a hundred pounds from one of the student organizations.
1: Right. And then framing the groundskeeper, I think, and getting him fired. And everyone realizes that it was Swan that stole the money and they were still willing to just sacrifice this poor framed man's job, even though everyone knew he was framed. Yeah. The movie should be about his revenge. That would be fun. But again, it's just that entrenched class system
0: of no one daring to question a gentleman's word. And what we learned then is that Swan is no gentleman. Tony has been following him for months because a year earlier, around the time that Mark and Margot ended their relationship, Tony had realized something was up and he followed her and he saw Mark and Margot through a window having a spaghetti dinner. And when he saw that spaghetti dinner, he saw them clearly in love. And that's when he knew that he had to get revenge on Margot. And he started thinking about killing her. But then he walked into a bar and he saw Swan there and was like, ah, I shouldn't kill her. I should get that dirtbag to kill her. And he's been following Swan for a year to find out information to blackmail
1: him. I mean, based off of Lady and the Tramp, there's no more romantic dinner than spaghetti. So he must have been furious.
0: I think Lady and the Tramp might be the same year as this movie.
1: It came out the following year. I just looked it up. I knew it was right around there. (laughs) Right. So clearly in the mid-50s, spaghetti was the romantic go-to. Well, it's so noodly. Nothing like covering your clothing in sauce as you're trying to eat spaghetti gracefully. Well, then what happens is your clothes are covered in sauce, so you have to take them off. Oh, right. Oh, I got a spill. Let me just get that shirt for you so I can run it under some water. That's what makes spaghetti
0: so sexy. Exactly. They actually, sometimes in the
1: 1950s, would call it spasexy. I hated that. I hated it so much. Anyway, Tony notices that there is a letter, and Margot keeps in her handbag at all times. And he also is aware of her burning the other letters. Right. So he eventually finds an opportunity to take the letter out of her handbag at
0: a train station. Right. He's the one who steals her bag, takes the letter then returns the bag. And he's also the one who blackmails her just for the heck of it to see if she would do it. Yeah, he is not a good man. I thought a lot about Gaslight during this movie.
1: Yeah, he is very much Gaslighting her (laughs) in many ways. He is telling her what to believe and forcing her to kind of accept that it's her idea. Which you see a lot in the next scene where he's trying to convince her to stay home.
0: And much like in Gaslight, it is a dude trying to get at his wife's wealth. Right. So anyway, ultimately, through all of this, Tony tells Swan that he would like Swan to murder Margot, and he walks through exactly how Swan should conduct the plan, and he also uses that English class structure as a threat to do it, where Swan's like, well, why don't I just go to the police station and say that you're trying to hire me to kill your wife? And Tony's like, who are they going to believe, me or you? Like, I'm a wealthy, respected member of society, you are a dude who goes through the world with multiple names to hide the fact that you're constantly skipping out on rent. And currently scamming an old widow. Yeah, so Tony
1: hires Swan as a hitman to kill his wife. And Swan, I think,
0: he doesn't seem too hesitant about it. No, he's pretty willing to do it. Yeah. Like, his hesitancy is all like, how's it gonna work? And Tony's like, here's the plan. And Swan's like, all right, fine. All right, I'll take your thousand pounds. It's a good chunk of change. Yes. So this
1: brings us to point number three, which is the night of the murder. Hello? Hello? It's the following night. Tony and Mark are getting ready to go to the bachelor party. And Mark and part of the plan is he needs... To take her key so that she doesn't have one.
0: And he'll leave the key out for Swan to let himself in. Right. To then murder Margot.
1: But she says, no, I need it because I'm going to go see a movie. And I can just let you in when you come home.
0: Because Tony claims that he can't find his key and that's why he needs Margot's.
1: Oh, right. And eventually he kind of forces her to stay home by guilting her about not putting newspaper clippings into a scrapbook.
0: About his tennis career, right? And she's like trying to push back. No, oh, you two are going to go out gallivanting while I stay home and do these boring press clippings. So then he starts reverse guilting her. He's like, "All right, fine. Like it's clear that you don't want to be left home alone, so we just won't go to the party. We'll just stay here with you and not go out." And he's like going to the phone, calling up the party before she caves because he is manipulating her aggressively.
1: Yeah, it's so it's so annoying to watch. And so she ends up staying home, and
0: he goes to the party. And makes the phone call to signal to Swan that now uh, is the time, now is the time to murder. kill my wife.
1: <laughs> so he uh, makes the call. The murder is about to happen. But then Margot finds a pair
0: of scissors and jabs it into the back of the man strangling her. And manages, I guess, to stab the right place in his back because he's dead not long after. Right. Not least because when he falls, he falls on his back, driving the scissors deeper into his body. Right. It was definitely not the first stab that killed him, no, it was but the one. she managed to stab him like Buffy stabs a vampire right in the heart every time. From some of the reporting around the 3D filmmaking, it seems like early on there was like a POV shot of him falling onto the scissors where the audience would have been like in the midst of that. That would be kind of dark. I don't yes. think I would have liked that. <laughs> Glad they cut that. Glad they yeah. realized the problem with it. But so then Tony, who is on the phone all this time, tells Margot that he will rush home and for her not to talk to anybody or to touch anything.
1: Right. And not even to call the police. Because Tony, the big strong man, has to come and deal with it. Yes. So this brings us to point number four. The entire investigation.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know. As far as the investigation relates to romance, there's not that much. Now we're focused on murder.
1: This is Wendy's. Why didn't you call the police immediately this happened? I was trying to get through to the police when I discovered my husband was on the line. I naturally thought that he would call the police from the hotel before he came here. Yeah, the romance of the movie kind of is much less involved at this point. Mark becomes very involved after Margot is
0: sent to jail. He wants to save her from hanging. Yeah, part of what happens is that Tony waits a while to call the police. Among other things, he is doctoring a bunch of evidence. He replaces the scarf that Swan had used to strangle Margot with one of her stockings, and he hides the other one in his desk. He's trying to make it look like Margot faked evidence and that she was being blackmailed and invited Swan there and decided to kill him instead. So he's now framing Margot for murder. And when he calls the police there, they start working through some of this. Tony also gets Margot to lie about the evidence. He told the police that the reason Margot didn't call the police was because she assumed he would after she told him over the phone that someone had attempted to kill her. So he gets her to say the same thing. And it's not until the next day then that Mark shows up and the inspector asks Mark if Tony knows that Mark and Margot had this relationship. Because Tony, in the midst of his manipulation of the evidence, took the love letter and put it in Swan's jacket to identify him as the blackmailer. Right. There's a lot of...
1: Tony wiping fingerprints off of everything and being very careful in doing this. And he is very successful. It's the perfect crime. Yeah, he manages to
0: cover his tracks for a while and get Margot arrested and convicted of murder. I mean, it's like the Poirot situation where if not for the one person being around, Tony probably would have gotten away with it. Right. Like if not for Mark, the detective story writer being around, Tony probably would have gotten
1: away with it. Right. I didn't really get the part where... Mark was trying to convince Tony to turn himself in. Because yeah, that was weird. He's basically saying, Tony, you have to kill yourself to get Margot free. Which Mark would be fine with
0: because he wants to get with Margot.
1: Right. That was kind of weird. But it's just to show that Mark basically knows how it happened, but doesn't really believe that that is how it happened. He believes Margot's story, essentially.
0: Because it's so fantastical.
1: Right. But eventually, the inspector f- kind of Pieces together the weirdness of the scheme, mostly through the fact that all keys look the same, and yes. the key that was planted on the body was not Margot's key, but it was actually the key to Swan's apartment, so it didn't work.
0: Right. So how could Swan have gotten in? Tony thought he was covering his tracks by taking the key out of Swan's pocket and putting it back in Margot's purse, but Swan had returned the key back to where Tony hid it originally. The key in his pocket was his own. So when the inspector tried to use Margot's key to enter her house, the key didn't work. And that's when he he realized something was up. (laughs) When the inspector was attempting to commit breaking and entering. Precisely. And that leads us to point number five, the resolution of this all. When they bring Margot back from jail, they have her hide in her apartment. With her nude lipstick. (laughs) While they put on this test to see if Tony will check under the carpet. For the key he left for Swan. And when he does, they know that he knew about this plan, and they arrest him based on that, and Margot is saved the day before she would face the gallows. As you said, Mark, it uh, might work out on paper, but uh, congratulations, Inspector.
1: Right. Because apparently this investigator somehow has a direct line to the home secretary. It's
0: all about class, Mark. It is. So
1: to put this in perspective... Remember
0: when Tony said that he had almost resigned himself to living off what he can earn? Like, what a tragedy.
1: Basically picture a random homicide investigator calling A.G. Barr because he had a lead in one murder case.
0: That's how it goes, I guess.
1: Yeah, that was insane to me. And maybe Mark and Margot get together at the end. I don't know. Yeah, they don't really wrap that up. I feel like there would have been more to that. I would expect like a weird, passionate, end of movie kiss. Right. Like they somehow get back together, but they do well, not. I guess he's going to go back to the States at some point. Maybe she'll go with him. It's not like she ever has to work again. And now she'll inherit his tennis winnings, right? <laughs> yeah, his, his, I'm sure, massive tennis winnings that he must have had. She can sell the cups at least. Yeah, because apparently swan was supposed to be a thief who was stealing his tennis cups his trophies
0: i hope there's not a name on those trophies because that would make it hard to sell them
1: yeah i don't really get what you would get from selling trophies i guess they're valuable materials but i feel like the true value is
0: in the emotion that goes with it actually fun fact about selling trophies one of the conditions of winning an oscar is that you're not allowed to sell it without first giving the Academy the option to buy it for whatever price they want. That's so weird. Yeah. So, Mark. Yes? Do you find the romance of Dial M for Murder believable? Not particularly. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, no one ever seems to like each
1: other in this movie. There's not a single person in this movie that seems to like anyone else.
0: I think Margot and Mark like each other. Yes. I just don't find okay. them particularly romantic.
1: No, because I think the romance has really died between them. Yeah.
0: They like each other, though.
1: Right. They're still friends, but that kiss did kind of feel weird. It's like exes kissing more than anything.
0: It's a long kiss. That's all I'm saying.
1: Yeah. But as it was 1954, there was not a lot of motion in the
0: kiss. They were just kind of smashing faces together. So every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale where 0 means we believe none of it and 10 means we believe all of it, where would you rate Dial M for murder? Hmm. I'd probably give it, like, a, a 5. I think I gotta give it a 4. I mean, the murder is so strong. And the depths of the plot. Yeah, he really he hates a his... Year stalking this dude, and he steals his wife's bag, and then he blackmails her out of curiosity. Like, there's just a lot of layers.
1: Yeah, he seems to really hate his wife. And when she starts to become a good wife because he's being nice again, you'd think that he would decide not to murder her. Nope. Because he will not reconsider. Because only fools change their mind, Mark. Right. And he wants to put his hands on that money.
0: Yes. Now, do you think that Mark, Margot, or Tony is dateable?
1: Um maybe Margot. She doesn't have much of personality. Grease Kelly is giving a good performance. There's just not a lot of depth to any of these characters.
0: No, and she especially isn't given a ton to do in part because she's off screen for so much of the movie. Like this movie really is about Tony. And the question is, will he pull it off or not? Tony and the investigator more than anyone else. Yeah. And I
1: don't think Mark and Margot would stay together. No, I mean, I don't even know that they get together. So if you did have to pick one person to date, In this movie, from the vast choice
0: of characters you have, who would you choose? So there's a strong argument in favor of Margot. Yes. Because she seems perfectly nice. She's fabulously wealthy. She dresses incredibly. Right. So all of those factors are a strong argument in favor of Margot. If you have to do someone else, you probably do the inspector, who seems like a clever, friendly guy. Mark doesn't really seem to have any downsides either. Well, that's true. And he's a TV writer
1: yeah I was leaning towards Mark more than anyone. All right, I think I'm gonna do Margot. okay. It would be weird for me to date someone with my name, so I'd probably lean towards Margot for that reason more than anything else. I think you could make it cute, but I did like Margot and Mark. There's just not a lot of depth to any of these characters, to be honest. That's not really the point. no. But it just makes it hard to answer that question.
0: Now, many of the movies that we've covered on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. Dialogue for Murder is based on a play, but the question mark is, should it be made into a musical? I don't think so.
1: I really don't think songs would add anything to this. This is not something that needs to be longer. No, and it's incredibly dialogue heavy, and none of this
0: dialogue would be better conveyed through song. Right. And also, then you've got the question of there's already an intermission. Do you use the same intermission? Do you put the intermission at a different time?
1: That intermission was so funny. It took me completely by surprise. This movie is like an hour 45 and there's an intermission. It's very weird. But I agree with you. I don't think this needs to be a musical.
0: No. I think we've covered "Dilem for Murder. Now, Alfred Hitchcock was sometimes thought of as the master of suspense. Next week, we'll be looking at a movie by the self-titled Master of the Romantic Thriller, a student of Hitchcock, James Nguyen.
1: Next week, we'll be discussing the... It might be the worst movie. I think it's worse than anything else. We I will think be it's dis- the worst movie. I think we, we will be discussing Birdemic Shock and Terror. <coughs> that sounded better than <laughs> the birds in the movie.
0: Yeah, he should have hired me as his Foley artist.
1: Yeah. So get ready for that. Until then you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can always email us questions or movie suggestions
0: at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show.
1: All right, Will. Last question. What is
0: the best piece of dating advice you got from this film? If you need to let someone down, give them a nice pasta dinner to go with it.
1: My advice is if you just act like a good husband you will probably be successful in your marriage. All right. <laughs> there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. I just to say I love you. I just called to say